Chapter Thirteen, Part Two of the Guns of Shiloh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Guns of Shiloh by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter Thirteen In the Forest, Part Two. War plays singular chances. Halleck, in St. Louis, secure in his plan of campaign, had sent an order after Dick left Shiloh for Buell to turn to the north, leaving Grant to himself, and occupy a town that he named. Through some chance, the order never reached Buell. Had it done so, the whole course of American history might have been changed. Grant himself, after the departure of the earlier messengers, changed his mind and sent messengers to Nelson, who led Buell's vanguard, telling him not to hurry. This army was to come to Pittsburgh Landing, or Shiloh, partly by the Tennessee, and Grant stated that the vessels for him would not be ready until some days later. It was in the early stage of the war, when generals behaved with great independence, and Nelson, a rough, stubborn man, after reading the order, marched on faster than ever. It seemed afterward that the very stars were for Grant, when one order was lost and another disobeyed. But Dick was not to know of these things until later. He delivered in person his dispatch to General Buell, who remembered him and gave him a friendly nod, but who was as chary of speech as ever. He wrote a brief reply to the dispatch and gave it sealed to Dick this letter i hand you he said merely notifies general grant that i have received his orders and will hurry forward as much as possible if on your return journey you should deem yourself in danger of falling into the hands of the enemy destroy it at once dick promised to do so saluted and retired he spent only two hours in general buell's camp securing some fresh provisions to carry in his saddlebags and allowing his horse a little rest then he mounted and took as straight a course as he could for general grant's camp at pittsburgh landing the boy felt satisfied with himself he had done his mission quickly and exactly and he would have a pleasant ride back on his strong swift horse and with a good knowledge of the road he could go several times faster than buell's army he anticipated a pleasant ride the forest seemed to him to be fairly drenched in spring little birds flaming in color darted among the boughs and others more modest in garb poured forth a full volume of song dick sensitive to sights and sounds hummed a tune himself it was the thundering song of the sea that he had heard samuel jarvis sing in the kentucky mountains they bore him away when the day had fled and the storm was rolling high and they laid him down on his lonely bed by the light of an angry sky the lightning flashed and the wild sea lashed the shore with its foaming wave and the thunder passed on the rushing blast as it howled o'er the rover's grave he pressed on hour after hour through the deep woods meeting no one but content at noon his horse suddenly showed signs of great weariness and dick remembering how much he had ridden him over muddy roads gave him a long rest besides there was no need to hurry the southern army was at corinth in mississippi three or four days journey away and there had been no scouts or skirmishers in the woods between after a stop of an hour he remounted and rode on again but the horse was still feeling his great strain and he did not push him beyond a walk 
he calculated that nevertheless he would reach headquarters not long after nightfall and he went along gaily still singing to himself he crossed the river at a point above the army where the union troops had made a ferry and then turned toward the camp about sunset he reached a hill from where he could look over the forest and see under the horizon faint lights that were made by grant's campfires at pittsburg landing it was a welcome sight he would soon be with his friends again and he urged his horse forward a little faster halt came a sharp voice from the thicket dick faced about in amazement he saw four horsemen in gray riding from the bushes the shock was as great as if he had been struck by a bullet but he leaned forward on his horse's neck kicked him violently with his heels and shouted to him the horse plunged forward at a gallop the boy remembering general buell's instructions slipped the letter from his pocket and in the shelter of his horse's body dropped it to the ground where he knew it would be lost among the bushes and in the twilight halt was repeated more loudly and sharply than ever then a bullet whizzed by his ear and a second pierced the heart of his good horse he tried to leap clear of the falling animal and succeeded but he fell so hard among the bushes that he was stunned for a few moments when he revived and stood up he saw the four horsemen in gray looking curiously at him twould have been cheaper for you to have stopped when we told you to do so said one in a whimsical tone dick noticed that the tone was not unkind it was not the custom to treat prisoners ill in this great war he rubbed his left shoulder on which he had fallen and which still pained him a little i didn't stop he said because i didn't know that you'd be able to hit either me or my horse in the dusk i suppose from your way of looking at it you were right to take the chance but you've learned now that we southern men are tolerable good sharpshooters i knew it long ago but what are you doing here right in the jaws of our army they might close on you any minute with a snap you ought to be with your own army at corinth dick noticed that the men looked at one another and there was silence for a moment or two young fellow resumed the spokesman you was coming from the direction of columbia and your horse which i'm sorry we had to kill looked as if he was clean tuckered out i judged that you was bearing a message from buell's army to grant's you mustn't hold me responsible for your judgment good or bad no i reckon not but say young feller do you happen to have a chaw tobacco in your clothes if i had any i'd offer it to you but i never chew the man sighed well maybe it's a bad habit he said but it's powerful grippin i'd give a heap for a good twist of old kentucky now we're going to search you and it ain't worth while to resist cause we got you where we want you as the dog said to the coon when he took him by the throat we're looking for letters and dispatches cause we're sure you come from buell but if we should run across any tobacco we'll have to help ourselves to it we ain't no robbers cause in times like these it ain't no robbery to take tobacco dick noticed that while they talked one of the men never ceased to cover him with a rifle they were good-humored and kindly but he knew they would not relax an inch from their duty all right he said go ahead i'll give you a good legal title to everything you may find he knew that the letter was lying in the bushes within ten feet of them and he had a strong temptation to look in that direction and see if it were as securely hidden as he had thought but he resisted the impulse two of the men searched him rapidly and dexterously and much to their disappointment found no dispatch you ain't got any writing on you that's sure said the spokesman i expected to find a paper and i had a lingering hope too that we might find a little tobacco on you in spite of what you said 
You don't think I'd lie about the tobacco, would you? Sonny, it ain't no lying in a big war to say you ain't got no tobacco without them that's aching for it or standing by ready to grab it. If you had a big diamond hid about you, and a robber was to ask you if you had it, you'd tell him no, of course. I think, said Dick, that you must be from Kentucky. You got our accent. I surely am, and I'm a longer way from it than I like. I noticed from the first that you talked like me, which is powerful flattering to you. Ain't you one of my brethren that the evil witches have made take up with the Yankees? I'm from the same state, replied Dick, who saw no reason to conceal his identity. My name is Richard Mason, and I'm an aide on the staff of Colonel Arthur Winchester, who commands a Kentucky regiment in General Grant's army. I've heard of Colonel Winchester, the same that got a part of his regiment cut up so bad by Forrest. Yes, we did get cut up. I was there, confessed Dick a little reluctantly. Don't feel bad about it. It's likely to happen to any of you when Forrest is around. Now, since you've introduced yourself so nice, I'll introduce myself. I'm Sergeant Robertson in the Orphan Brigade. It's a Kentucky brigade, and it gets its nickname because it's made up of boys so young that they call me Grandpa, though I'm only 44. These other three are Bridge, Perkins, and Connor, just plain privates. The three just plain privates grinned. What are you going to do with me? asked Dick. We're going to give you a pleasant little ride. We killed your hoss, for which I apologize again, but I've got a good one of my own, and you'll jump up behind me. A sudden spatter of rifle fire came from the direction of the northern pickets. Them sentinels of yours have funny habits, said Robertson, grinning, just bound to hear their guns go off. They're changing the guard now. How do you know that? asked Dick. Oh, I know a heap. I'm a terrible wise man, but being so wise I don't tell all I know or how I happen to know it. Hop on, Sonny. Don't you think I'll be a lot of trouble to you, said Dick, riding behind you thirty or forty miles to your camp? The four men exchanged glances, and no one answered. The boy felt a sudden chill, and his hair prickled at the roots. He did not know what had caused it, but surely it was a sign of some danger. The night deepened steadily as they were talking. The twilight had gone long since. The last afterglow had faded. The darkness was heavy with warmth. The thick foliage of spring rustled gently. Dick's sensation that something unusual was happening did not depart. The four men, after looking at one another, looked fixedly at Dick. Sonny, said Robinson, you ain't got no call to worry about our troubles. As I said, this is a good strong horse of mine, and it'll carry us just as far as we go and no further. It was an enigmatical reply, and Dick saw that it was useless to ask them questions. Robertson mounted, and Dick, without another word, sprang up behind him. Two of the privates rode up close one on either side, and the other kept immediately behind. He happened to glance back, and he saw that the man held a drawn pistol on his thigh. He wondered at such extreme precautions, and the ominous feeling increased. Now, lad, said Robinson to his men, don't make no more noise than you can help. There ain't much chance that any Yankee scouting party will be out, but if there should be one, we don't want to run into them. And as for you, Mr. Mason, you're a nice boy. We all can see that, but just as sure as you let go with a yell, or anything like it, at any time, or under any circumstances, you'll be dead the next second. A sudden fierce note rang in his voice, and Dick, despite all his courage, shuddered. He felt as if a nameless terror all at once threatened not only him, but others. His lips and mouth were dry. 
Robertson spoke softly to his horse, and then rode slowly forward through the deep forest. The others rode with him, never breaking their compact formation, and preserving the utmost silence. Dick did not ask another question. Talk and fellowship were over. Everything before him now was grim and menacing. The dense woods and the darkness hid them so securely that they could not have been seen twenty yards away. But the men rode on at a sure pace, as if they knew the ground well. The silence was deep and intense, save for the footsteps of the horses, and now and then a night-bird in the tall trees calling. Before they had gone very far, a man stopped from a thicket and held up a rifle. Four men from the orphan brigade were the prisoners, said Robertson. Advance with the prisoners, said the picket, and the four men rode forward. Dick saw to both left and right other pickets, all in the gray uniform of the South, and his heart grew cold within him. The hair on his head prickled again at its roots, and it was a dreadful sensation. What did it mean? Why these southern pickets within cannon-shot of the northern lines? The men rode slowly on. They were in the deep forest, but the young prisoner began to see many things under the leafy canopy. On his right the dim, shadowy forms of hundreds of men lay sleeping on the grass. On his left was massed battery of great guns, eight in number. Further and further they went, and there were soldiers and cannon everywhere, but not a fire. There was no bed of coals. Not a single torch gleamed anywhere. Not all the soldiers were sleeping, but those who were awake never spoke. Silence and darkness brooded over a great army in gray. It was as if they marched among forty thousand phantoms, row on row. The whole appalling truth burst in an instant upon the boy. The southern army, which they had supposed was at Corinth, lay in the deep woods within cannon-shot of its foe, and not a soul in all of Grant's thousands knew of its presence there. And Buell was still far away. It seemed to Dick that for a little space his heart stopped beating. He foresaw it all, the terrible hammer-stroke at dawn, the rush of the fiery south upon her unsuspecting foe, and the cutting down of brigades before sleep was gone from their eyes. Not in vain had the South boasted that Johnston was a great general. He had not been daunted by Donelson. While his foe rested on his victory and took his ease, he was here, with a new army, ready to strike the unwary. Dick shivered suddenly, and with a violent impulse clutched the waist of the man in front of him. It may have been some sort of physical telepathy, but Robertson understood. He turned his head and said in a whisper, You're right. The whole southern army is here in the woods, and we'd rather lose a brigade tonight than let you escape. Dick felt a thrill of the most acute agony. If he could only escape, there must be some way, if he could but find one. His single word would save the lives of thousands and prevent irreparable defeat. Again he clutched the waist of the man in front of him, and again the man divined. It ain't no use, he said, though his tone was gentle, and in a way sympathetic. After all, it's your own fault. You blundered right in our way, and we had to take you for fear you'd see us, and give the alarm. It was your unlucky chance. You'd give a million dollars if you had it to slip out of our hands, and tell Ulysses Grant that Albert Sidney Johnston, with his whole army, is laying in the woods right alongside of him, ready to jump on his back at dawn, and he not knowing it. 
I would, said Dick fervently. And so would I if I was in your place. Just think, Mr. Mason, that of all the hundreds of thousands of men in the northern armies, of all the twenty or twenty-five million people on the northern side, there's just one. That one a boy, and that boy you, who knows that Albert Sidney Johnston is here. Held fast as I am, I'm sorry now that I do know it. Can't say that I blame you. I said you'd give a million dollars to be able to tell, but if you're to measure such things with money, it'd be worth a hundred million and more. Yes, it would be cheaper three or four hundred million for the North to know it. But after all, you can't measure such things with money. Maybe you think I talk a heap, but I'm stirred some, too. They rode on a little farther over the hilly ground, covered with thick forest or dense tall scrub. But there were troops, troops everywhere, and now and then the batteries. They were mostly boys, like their antagonists of the North, and the sleep of most of them was the sleep of exhaustion, after a forced and rapid march over heavy ground from Corinth. But Dick knew that they would be fresh in the morning, when they rose from the forest and rushed upon their unwarned foe. End of chapter 13, part 2